Over the last few decades, historically black colleges and universities have struggled with enrollment. South Carolina State is one of about 100 historically black colleges and universities around the nation, and among those struggling to survive. A number of HBCUs still are in financial distress. Due to low enrollment and lack of funding, the future of our country's HBCUs is in jeopardy. Fewer students and declining state and federal support have taken their toll. A few HBCUs have even been forced to close in the last two decades. Several others have gone down to so few students that they've lost their accreditation. But some HBCUs have begun to see a surprising uptick in enrollment from beyond the school's traditional applicants. HBCUs have always welcomed students from all all backgrounds. I think what we're seeing now is that there's just a more concerted effort to get those students. From APM Reports, this is Educate. I'm Stephen Smith. We're talking with Delise Smith-Barrow, a senior editor at the Heckinger Report. She's reported that historically black colleges and universities are enrolling more international students and more students who aren't black. And she's written about how the schools are working to hold on to their campus culture and curriculum as the makeup of their student bodies change. So, Delise, let's step back for just for a moment and talk about why HBCUs exist at all. What's the history of these unique institutions? So, you know, more than 100 years ago when um, colleges and universities were sprouting up around across the United States, most of them, if not all of them, did not allow black students to attend, um, to even step foot on campus unless they were an enslaved laborer. So HBCUs were necessary for black students to get an education. It was their only it was the only option. But you know, now things have changed and predominantly white institutions are, of course, allowing black students, Latino students, students of all races, ethnicities, genders to come into their institutions. A few years ago, uh, enrollment at historically black colleges and universities was dropping. What's happening now? At a number of schools, there's been a surge of international students that have really boosted enrollment. I mean, hundreds more students coming from Saudi Arabia, coming from Kuwait, coming from, you know, schools across the globe. So that's been a boost to enrollment. And why is this happening? Are the schools more actively recruiting people? Are people more actively applying? Or is it a combination? It's a combination. Um, some schools are actively recruiting, going as far as Israel, Vietnam, just really far away to find students. Um, others are doing a little bit more on the ground kind of word of mouth recruitment. So they're not necessarily spending a lot of money, but they're pushing that pushing their current international students to tell their friends from home, tell family members from home about the good experience that they're having and hoping that that message will just kind of spread naturally and that will draw more students to the institution. Um, others are hosting regional events for all international students in their area. So Morgan State University in Baltimore, that's one institution that is um, pretty good about hosting events for students from abroad as a way to kind of expand their brand, expand their name recognition within this community, and to maybe even attract some of the international students who are at community colleges and are looking for four-year institutions to transfer to. And are they targeting as uh, potential students, students of color? Is that an active way that they are trying to uh, recruit? They are just targeting 
anyone from abroad who they think would be a good fit at the institution. So not necessarily black students or black teens who are living in Kuwait necessarily. So if it it truly is someone um, who is Arab, who is of of another ethnicity, that's that's totally fine. Um, HBCUs have always welcomed students from all all backgrounds. I think what we're seeing now is that there's just a more concerted effort to get those students. So no, they're not necessarily black. I never heard about uh, uh, HBCU universities before I applied. Fahad Al-Harathi says he had never heard of HBCUs before he got to school. He's from Saudi Arabia, and he studies respiratory therapy at Tennessee State University. It's a historically black university in Nashville. He chose TSU because of the large number of Saudi students who were already there. He says most of them came because they heard good things about the school from other Saudis. I think they just came because it's... um what they hear about it before. Al-Harathi says the Saudi students at Tennessee State have formed a community and a support system for one another at the school. They they help when you need help. You feel like you didn't feel you're alone there and this kind of stuff. Tennessee State University is just one HBCU that's put a lot of effort into recruiting international students. In 2008, international student enrollment there numbered just 77. Eight years later, it was up to 549. Seventy percent of international students at Tennessee State are from Saudi Arabia. Despite some of the difficulties becoming fully immersed in campus life, Al-Harathi says he sees himself as part of an important cultural exchange. They're teaching other culture about African-American history, uh, history and culture. Like, I learn a lot of things about them. And I believe some of my classmates learn something about my culture. Is this part of a larger change in the demographics at HBCUs? I think so. HBCUs, just like predominantly white institutions, are are definitely looking at their enrollment numbers and figuring out how to boost them, how to strengthen them. Colleges across the U.S. have seen a drop in enrollment. So international students definitely get that get those numbers up. And if you are a public institution, a lot of HBCUs are public. I think it's about half. International students bring extra dollars with them because they're not paying in-state tuition. Oftentimes, they're paying maybe twice that much. So I think it's um, a few different things happening in terms of enrollment and school finances that you get with international students. Are the HBCUs doing anything to the curriculum? Are they doing any sort of adjustments to the curriculum uh, to attract students from around the world? Is there a greater emphasis, for example, on science, technology, engineering, and math field kind of things, STEM things. So, yeah, so at Morgan State University in Baltimore, that's exactly what's happening. They had so many students from the Middle East coming to Morgan wanting to study engineering that they had to increase the number of engineering classes offered over the summer because students were coming on a scholarship, you know, from their country, so maybe Saudi Arabia, maybe Kuwait, and with these scholarships, essentially, you are on a you have a time limit in terms of how long you can spend studying. And a lot of times with engineering, um, with engineering majors, you know, you might be in school for five, maybe six years and international students, their scholarship doesn't allow them to be in school that long. So Morgan said, we will increase our summer offering of engineering classes to make sure these students can graduate, you know, quickly. 
Um, So they've definitely had to change the curriculum. And I think we'll see more of that as international students come and they have a specific interest in certain certain majors. The schools will have to kind of adjust to make sure they're meeting that student need. I think um, HBCUs are known for having a particularly uh, loyal, if you will, alumni base. People, you know, really loved their experience at, at college and tend to be very loyal to their institution. How are alumni um, and other supporters of HBCUs responding to this uh, recruiting effort? I think there's definitely mixed feelings. I've heard some say that they think the school should focus more on meeting the needs of um, Black students from the United States, particularly since there are so many Black students in the U.S. who are looking for a good college fit and would likely benefit from the experience of attending a historically Black college. I think um, some students, I spoke with a student at Tennessee State University who was concerned about the number of students from abroad at her institution and the number of non-Black students from abroad to the point where she was wondering if Tennessee State was still considered an HBCU. Now, because of because HBCUs are feder- federally designated, even if they are predominantly white, they would still be considered an HBCU. But I think there is a concern that recruitment with some institutions have been so strong that Black domestic students don't get the same level of attention and and resources and just, you know, personable one-to-one interaction the international students receive. So I think the I think the conversation is kind of mixed. Mary Beth Gassman is a professor at the Graduate School of Education at Rutgers University. I do research related to uh, all types of minority-serving institutions, um, and in particular, historically, Black colleges and universities. Gassman says that over her 10 years of studying HBCUs, she's seen them become more and more diverse. In 2013, she published a report called The Changing Face of Historically Black Colleges and Universities. And one of the things that we started to see is an influx of Latino students. And, you know, that's interesting. Um, It's interesting to see that. I mean, we do need to consider that Latino students are growing across the entire country. So this is just not a black college um, situation. But it is interesting to see more Latinos entering um, black colleges. And you're especially seeing this in Texas, but also North Carolina, which has an increase in Latino population. But in Texas specifically, you're seeing this across the board at all of the HBCUs. With one of the HBCUs, you know, the um, St. Philip's in San Antonio being both a Hispanic serving institution and um, an HBCU. Uh, But you're you're seeing alumni associations for Latinos pop up. You're seeing uh, Latina homecoming queens pop up. You're, you know, you're you're seeing student leaders who are now Latino, um, and I th- I think that that's really exciting. There are researchers who have interviewed these students, and when they're asked why they like the HBCU environment, they say it's really family oriented. It's very supportive. You know, people are uh, have a vested interest in their student success, and they like that. And so that's one of the reasons why you're seeing an uptick in Latinos. I mean, if I'm being honest, I was kind of worried, like, well, what if I don't feel like I belong, you know? But that was obviously not the case. That's Alexia Soto. She's a student at Paul Quinn College, a historically black college with campuses in Dallas and Plano, Texas. I consider myself uh, definitely a proud 
Mexican-American. My first language was Spanish. But yeah, I carry my uh, Hispanic side very with a lot of pride. Soto chose Paul Quinn in part because of those qualities Mary Beth Gassman just mentioned, the sense of unity and support and family. She's a soccer player, and the sport took priority while she was touring schools during her senior year of high school. When she got to Paul Quinn, though, it was the sense of family within the school that struck her. She even met with the university president on that visit. She calls him Prez. When I got to um, meet Prez and, you know, I was able to be a part of the tour that they were giving, I I couldn't imagine, imagine myself going to any other school other than Paul Quinn because they were so welcoming. Paul Quinn was one of those HBCUs that suffered declining enrollment for decades, but is now seeing a surge in students in the last few years. It was below 200 students in 2012. Now Paul Quinn has more than 500. Nearly a quarter of those students are Hispanic or Latino. Soto says she thinks the HBCU mission at Paul Quinn has changed a bit over the years as more and more students like herself enroll. Inevitably, it changes. I know that it's been commented with Paul Quinn, like, it's HBCU, you know. Like, you don't want HBCUs to, like, steer away from its originality, which is a school for, uh, you know, African-Americans. But Paul Quinn is one of those that isn't afraid of change. So definitely I feel like throughout the years it has changed its its motto, I guess, yeah. Um, It's more open to, you know, whoever... Um, is willing to, you know, just go to Paul Quinn. Researcher Mary Beth Gassman says a growing number of Asian Americans are choosing to enroll at HBCUs as well. And um, sometimes people, when I tell them that, they're like, ah, I don't know about that. But if you take a look, you're seeing just a slow increase. You know, it's only about one and a half percent, but that population really wasn't there if we look back a decade. And so some schools in particular, I can give you an example. I, I gave a commencement address at Jackson State, I don't know, maybe eight, 10 years ago. And I, I was sitting next to the president uh, at the event, and I noticed a large number of Asian American students And I turned to her and I said, wow, that's really interesting. And she said, yeah, you know, initially we had a few and then they started talking to people and they started talking to people. And we got this large increase in Asian American students um, because word of mouth got around that it was a really supportive academic environment. And you're also seeing that in other parts of the country with low income Asian Americans in particular. And, you know, one thing that we know about HBCUs is that they tend to do a very good job, um, especially with low income first generation students. You know, 71 percent of HBCU students are on Pell Grants, and so they have a lot of expertise in how to support these students. Um, And then another thing I would say is that the the percentage of white students has stayed pretty consistent. It's about 13% and has been for several decades. And, you know, that, uh, that depends on where you are. So those white students tend to be in public HBCUs, not as often in private H, uh, HBCUs, but, but they definitely are there. And when they are interviewed, they also talk about the supportive climate and the family-like atmosphere and, you know, the one-on-one relationships with faculty. So uh, I, I think that one of the big changes that we're seeing is in the racial and ethnic makeup of HBCUs. They're still overwhelmingly going to be serving black students, but they um, are, you know, they're, they're very, very diverse across the board in so many ways.
Gassman says this diversity is imperative for the school's survival. Less than 10% of college-age African-American students in the U.S. choose to go to an HBCU. I'm not sure how they survive with only 8% of Black students enrolling in them unless they engage other populations. I mean, I think right now there are lots of institutions across the country that have to engage a variety of populations. I mean, I think everybody has to engage the Latino population and the Latino population and the Asian population are the fastest growing populations in the country. I think everybody has to engage them. While HBCUs experienced this enrollment surge from international and Latino students, they've also seen a resurgence of African-American students applying. The falling enrollments at HBCUs have stabilized in the past few years. In fact, since 2016, there's been a slight increase in the percentage of black students who choose HBCUs. Robert Palmer is a professor at the Howard University School of Education in Washington, D.C. He says measuring African-American enrollment since 2016 in particular is important. There had been some anecdotal evidence that had mentioned that more black students were choosing to attend HBCUs because of the political climate kind of created by Donald Trump. And while that was really kind of anecdotal, I went to see if that was actually true. Palmer co-authored a study about the growing number of African-Americans choosing HBCUs since 2016. The report is titled, A Response to Racism, How HBCU Enrollment Grew in the Face of Hatred. And it was important for us to interview students who were um, freshmen and sophomores because they were going through the college choice process during a time that um, Donald Trump was campaigning for a president. Palmer and his co-author found many of the students that they talked to had been deeply affected by that campaign. Well, first of all, it's important to get some context and that, you know, the majority of students had attended white, um, predominantly white high schools. And they mentioned that, you know, in those spaces, they kind of saw when Donald Trump was campaigning and there was, you know, talk about building a wall they kind of saw like a different side of some of their friends, their white friends were kind of like, you know, really encouraging Donald Trump to really kind of build the wall and kind of saying really racist things. And that really kind of made the participants uh, kind of look differently, you know, and really kind of reassess the climate at their high schools. And because of that and because of some of the other, other things that, you know, Donald Trump had mentioned, um, and also because of this whole notion of the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the, the, the hate crimes that were occurring on campus, um, students really kind of talked about how they decided to attend an HBCU because it provided them with a safe space where they didn't have to face those issues, you know. So that was one of the, the, the main takeaways is knowing that HBCUs kind of provided this kind of safe haven. My name is Aisha Gibson. I currently attend the illustrious Grambling State University, and my major is history. Aisha Gibson grew up in San Diego, California, and went to community college there. After a couple years, she says a lot of her peers transferred to Cal State schools or University of California schools. She transferred to Grambling State, an HBCU in Louisiana. It was 2016 when she started applying and 2017 when she made the choice to go. So I want to go just to go, just to be around black people, especially during the climate of, um, uh, you could say, during Trump, post-Obama Trump. I have to leave. She says in San Diego she experienced overt racism during her job at a grocery store and felt belittled for asking questions in her class at community college. She felt the city she had grown up in turned on her. And again, this is in the state of California where it's supposed to be pro this, pro that, pro this, but it's not. It is not. 
Um, it's it's a beautiful state, you know, beautiful weather, but no, do, do not get it twisted. And California became a blue state because of Obama. The prior, it was red. It's been red. She says a lot of her friends at Grambling made a similar choice to go to an HBCU rather than predominantly white institutions or PWIs. So I have friends from California. I have friends from Arizona, friends from Nevada, all the way from Alaska. That's just the same thing. They just had to go to the HBCU, especially during this climate, um, uh, racial climate, political climate. They just have to leave. They have to go. And they knew that being an agency would be like a safer setting. She says some of her peers even passed on financial aid packages and scholarships from PWIs to attend Grambling instead. Yeah, and I know there are people, black students, or even minority students in general, that get these free rides, but it's like, you know, but at what extent? Because, yeah, you're getting this free ride, but you're depressed. You're crying every night. You're getting uh, uh, people are being, yeah, messed up to you because it's like, well, why are you here? What did you do to get here? You know what I mean? But I think that more black students need to start enrolling at HBCs in which they like they are. They are sacrificing. Um, I, I have friends, majority of the students here, contrary, they're business majors or they're biology, they're pre-med. And they could have they could have easily went to LSU or Louisiana Tech or Northwestern and got a free ride, you understand? But they chose not to. Robert Palmer says a number of the students he talked to for the study had also passed on aid packages at predominantly white schools or transferred from those schools to HBCUs. So in transferring, some of these students actually kind of gave up their scholarship to that they had at these um, predominantly white institutions. And when they came to an HBCU uh, as a transfer student, in some cases they, they may have received the scholarship, but in many cases the students had to kind of take out a loan and that was okay for them because it was about, you know, again, having that safe space where that space that students feel secured and, and nurtured, and they felt like they mattered. The study found many students had also been affected by something called the Missouri effect. What well, the Missouri effect was actually borrowed from the um, University of Missouri and because of, you know, uh, the racial incident that took place there. You know, and then we started seeing like kind of similar incidents kind of happen throughout the country. For example, at University of Virginia, and now we're kind of seeing that at Syracuse, where there was a, a rise in hate crimes on campus at PWIs, you know, which made a lot of minoritized students feel unsafe. And we see the same thing, as I mentioned, going on at Syracuse. It, it made minoritized students feel unsafe. And, ob- and obviously, you know, I think the data speaks to this, that since the election of President Donald Trump, there has been an increase in hate crimes, not just on campus, but in society as well, you know. Palmer says that the mission of HBCUs hasn't changed and doesn't stand to. The mission is the mission, so I don't think that that changes. I think the coach, I think the question is about the culture. Does that change the culture? And I would say no. I think it really depends on leadership. You know, so I think if you have a firm leader who's really kind of you know, um, because obviously you know the, the culture comes from the top, in terms of I mean, culture at an institution takes a long time to change. So I think it's about the leadership that really kind of dictates the culture. Palmer says that HBCUs can teach other universities about making diverse students feel more at home. The report has implications for, certainly for enrollment in HBCUs, but also for enrollment for black students and minoritized students at predominantly white institutions, knowing that when there's kind of social and political unrest in society, how that may drive more students into into HBCUs or MSIs. So, I mean, I think that kind of has implications for everyone kind of working proactively to kind of get engaged and making sure that, you know, not just in the campus community, but also in society that, you know, we are engaging 
these issues that will impact the climate, not just on the campus community, but also as a society in general, that we all kind of raising awareness and kind of talking about these issues and showing that, you know, we are working diligently in society and on campus to really, you know, make folks feel like they matter. That's it for this episode. Tell us what you think. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Educate Podcast, or you can send us a note to contact at apmreports.org. And you can find the reporting from Delise Smith-Barrow on changing enrollment at HBCUs at heckingerreport.org. This episode was produced by Alex Baumhart and edited by Chris Julin. It was mixed by Veronica Rodriguez. We partner with The Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization that focuses on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM. <laughs>